We have uh, talked, or I have talked, and you've listened, about uh, kind of the general, I guess, kind of pretty standard journey that uh, I went through, which I think uh, in my Christian walk, which I think a lot of people go through. Talked a little bit about developing a, a ministerial relationship with our Christian uh, neighbors. Talked a little bit about becoming acquainted with what, the way people think. Acquainted with popular Christianity. Uh, understanding the common ground that we have, the Word of God. Talked a little bit about the value of history. Talked a little bit about recognizing how people grow in increments. And we have to be uh, uh, patient because of that. We're all kind of on a slow growth process. Encouraging accuracy when, uh, when found. And... Uh, the neglected necessity of systematics and just uh, uh, an understanding of how the Christian faith as it's revealed in the Scriptures is something that ought to make sense and uh, work together. Tonight, I, have, uh, I want to spend the, uh, the entire time, and I got kind of a short talk tonight, and, uh, and then we're going to open it for a little Q&A afterwards. People are asking, can we have Q&A? So we'll have a little Q&A. And, uh, you know, until the questions run out, if there are any questions. But I've got one subject I want to cover tonight. And um, it's under the heading of Establishing a Starting Place. No matter if you're taking notes, it's Establishing a Starting Place, Part 1. And it is... The idea of confessions. I've talked a lot about confessions. The Westminster Confession or the three forms of unity and the different confessions. Uh, you know, of course, in our denomination, the Westminster Confession. And when I went to China two years ago, one of the things that they told me before I taught the Westminster Confession was that I'd better spend a good deal of time explaining to them, to them why there should be a confession. Their comment to me was, if you just start teaching through a confession, they're not going to, be, they're not going to recognize its value. And I thought that's an interesting thing because that is common among evangelicals today. There's a general lack of respect for the creeds and confessions of history. Uh, whether it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasius Creed, Athanasian Creed, or whether it's the the confessions, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, we'd all pretty much be in agreement with. There's just a natural disdain. And what I'd like to do tonight is I formed a... Uh, oh, let's see how many points I've got here. I've got H points. <laughs> how, many, how many is that, right? Eight? Okay, I've got eight. That's what I said. I've got eight points. And, uh, and if you want to build on this, that'd be fine. But I think these are just make all the sense. In my mind, these things make all the sense in the world. And I think these are good things to share with our evangelical friends who, for some reason, have a disdain for creeds and confessions. And um, before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to bless us with His wisdom. Father God, we do pray that You would grant us uh, an appreciation for the brothers and sisters in the faith who came before us, uh, who shed their own blood and made their own sacrifices 
to bless their posterity. And here we sit, the posterity of those who have been faithful throughout history. Help us to have a proper respect for that. Help us, Father, not to do those things which would turn these people in their grave and put the creeds and confessions on a par with Scripture. May, may these things always be subordinate and not coordinate to the Word of God. And yet, at the same time, I pray tonight that we would understand and have an increased understanding of their value. Through Christ, Father, we ask for this wisdom. Amen. I think one of the great advantages of the Reformed faith are the catechisms that we have for our children. I think, uh, you know, to hear, we have the mixed group tonight. You kids are in here. And... Um, I think it's a, a great advantage you have that your parents, uh, maybe your Sunday school teachers, your pastors, um, take advantage of those things we call catechisms. The, you know, the children's catechism or the shorter catechism. And you get to learn uh, what the Bible says about who Jesus is, who God is, who made you, why you were made, how you are saved. Uh, what, what happened as a result of the cross of Christ, and that these things uh, are in your heart from a very young age. It's truly an advantage, and I think that, and it's my hope for you and for my children, that you don't grow up with the same flaws in terms of your understanding of the Christian faith that I grew up with, where you're having to unlearn things and relearn them the right way. So it's truly a, it's truly. A blessing, and uh, you know, it is. Uh, I think all of our prayers as adults that you would grow to to appreciate what God, how God has truly blessed you uh, as you grow in your faith. It's not uncommon, I have found, for a person to be raised in a pretty sound denominational church, leave church for a time, usually when they go to college, and just kind of go away from the faith, then later grow up to start attending an independent popular church without realizing that it was their soundly grounded youth that God used to bring them back to the faith. I think it's, a, I think it's a astonishingly short-sighted when I talk to people like that. When they come and they're like, yeah, I became a Christian when I was 25. And, uh, well, how were you raised? Well, you know, we were raised, it was dead, it was nothing, it was... You know, no. Well, well, I was raised in a Lutheran church. So what? what what's so? Yeah, you know, we went to church every Sunday, and I learned the creeds, and I learned the catechisms, and I, you know, learned all those things. But it meant nothing to me. And then all of a sudden, you know, at the age of 25, you start going to some chapel, and it all becomes alive to you. And I think it's, a, I think it's amazingly short-sighted to just dismiss the fact that God, in His providence, raised you in His covenant family. And that you are participating in this amazing thing. Don't you realize? It's like people who, who get baptized again. And now I'm speaking as one who, who in my t- history, I rebaptized probably hundreds of people. Because, as I said, I was a Baptist and we had, I was hanging around with Presbyterians who were thinking like Baptists and they had been baptized as infants, but they wanted to get baptized again. You know why they wanted to get baptized again? Because they wanted to get baptized based upon a decision that they made. Really, is that what baptism's all about? It's all about you and your decisions? Do you think that's what that is a sign and a seal of? That, that's a sign and a seal of you and your decisions that you made? Isn't it interesting that God in His providence had put His sign upon you as an infant 
And here you are as an adult walking in the faith, and you don't make any connection at all. You think this is happening in Muslim countries? Do you think people are growing up and that's happening to them? Do you think it's happening in in, uh, countries where there's been no evangelism whatsoever? It's so significant that God, by His grace and by His providence, raised you in a place where you heard His message preached. You sung the victories of the cross. And you had the signs and the seals of God's covenant placed upon you. And then to not make the connection as you grow old, when you come to faith, that this was all part of God's design, God's decree, God's providence and His grace, I think is short-sighted. Be that as it may. Why confessions? The natural, I think, at least common question, one that I asked was, why do we need a confession? Is not the Bible sufficient? Popular slogans which surfaced during the last couple of hundred years to combat creeds and confessions were no creed but the Bible, no confession but Christ. I mean, it was a rally cry. It was an anti-creedal, anti-confessional movement. They had their little slogans. They had their little bumper stickers on the back of their stagecoach, right, going right down Highway 60, right? And it was no creed but the Bible, no confession but Christ. Isn't it interesting that at the same time in history is when the Mormons popped up? It's it's, uh, the whole history of Phineism at the same time in history, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I I don't mean to over... I know I've been talking a little about dispensationalism. I don't mean to overly, you know castigate that, but that's when dispensationalism began as well in the 1830s, became popular in the 1800s when the creeds and confessions were going out the window and, uh, you know, C.I. Schofield, you know, put together this, you you know, you had Darby and then uh, who kind of brought it out in the early 1800s and you had C.I. Schofield and his Schofield reference Bible that just became almost gospel. You know, I always like to say, see and I don't see eye to eye. And then there was Lewis Perry Chafer in Dallas Seminary, and it's, the rest is history. You know, I mean, John Walbert and his books, and uh, then Hal Lindsey made it so popular with the late great planet Earth, and you know, the best-selling book period in 1970, and the best-selling Christian book in the entire decade was the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and uh, became, as I, I think I had mentioned earlier, almost a test of orthodoxy as to whether or not you believed his view. So no creed, no confession. So I think a few, and you know what, if we had, had 10,000 evangelicals in here tonight, and I said, no creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible, if I said that, I'd probably get 9,000 amens. So what I'd like to do tonight is examine whether or not that's a sensible response. And I'd like to do is arm you a little bit with how you might respond to your Christian friends who have a natural disdain for the history of the church, confessions, and creeds. A. Sola Scriptura is creedal. Sola Scriptura, that the Scriptures alone is a creedal statement. Now, if you have doubts about that, I'd like to be able to prove my points really fast. First of all, There's no place in the Bible where the 66 books of the Bible are listed. Right? You don't have it. It's not somewhere hidden in Hosea. 
Right? So you have, you have nowhere in the Bible where the 66 books of the Bible are actually listed. So sola scriptura, in terms of those 66 books, is itself a creedal statement. And if you don't believe it, you have to take into account the fact that there are at least a billion people on this planet who consider themselves Christians who do not believe in sola scriptura. And you know who I'm talking about. I mean, why sola scriptura even exists, right? Roman Catholics do not believe in sola scriptura. So sola scriptura itself is a creedal statement. It is not something you find in the text. It is our basic assumption as Christians. It is our basic presupposition that we make, that the Bible is the Word of God. You know, it's chapter 1 of the Confession, right? It's not chapter 2. Isn't that interesting? People go, how come chapter 1 is of the Scriptures and chapter 2 is of God? Isn't God more important than the Scriptures? I mean, that's a question people ask. Well, of course God's more important than everything, but the, accurate, the only really authoritative and accurate, inerrant information that we have about God comes from the Scriptures. I had a guy get on my case one time. He says, you know, it used to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now it's Father, Son, Holy Scriptures. And I went down to Mexico and I was talking to this guy. We were thinking about, I worked for years in an orphanage down there and we were looking at a new orphanage to work out and we were connecting with the minister down there and kind of going, well, so, you know, are you where are you at theologically? We are trying to figure out where he was at theologically. And I'm like, well, we're sola scriptura. And he's like, yeah, well, we're sola spiritura. This is kind of the charismatic answer, you know. We just go with the Holy Spirit. But the accurate information that we have about God comes from the Holy Scriptures, which itself is a creedal statement. So, A, sola scriptura itself is creedal. B, there is biblical precedent for short statements of faith or confessions. The New Testament, we see formalized summaries of belief that are taken, taken for granted as aids to faith and practice. For example, we read of, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, the Gospel. We have a short summary there, if you will, that the Apostle Paul gives of the Gospel. In Galatians 6, 6, we see of him who teaches. In uh, 2 John 9 and 10, we see of the doctrine of Christ. In Titus 1, 9, the faithful word. Uh, in Romans 6, 17, the form of doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 11.2 and 2 Thessalonians, we see of the traditions or the elementary principles that we read of in Hebrews chapter 6 and so on. God's Word, this is not a hard argument to make, God's Word is designed to be taught. Deuteronomy 4, 9, and 10, right? Teach these things to your children. If it's designed to be taught, that necessitates some form of a confession, now, think about that. If, if I'm going to teach it, if we're not just going to read it, if we're not just going to get together and read the Bible, and if I'm going to open, look up and start talking, that requires some form of a confession or creedal statement. Now, you may not write it down, but we're going to get to that in just a second. C, and that's, that kind of moves in from what, we're talking about, what I was just talking about. C, everybody has one. Remember I was talking earlier about everybody has a liturgy? Some are just well thought out and the other ones aren't, but everybody's got one. It's the same thing here. There are two kinds of Christians. Those who admit they have a confession and those who don't admit it. But everybody has a confession. 
A. Hodge states, the real question is not, as often pretended, between the word of God and the creed of men, but between the tried and proved faith of the collective body of God's people and the private judgment and unassisted wisdom of the repudiator of creeds. In other words, what he's saying here is everybody's crying out sola scriptura, and what they really want is solo scriptura. It's how I interpret the Bible. I don't want it to be examined by everybody. Let me tell you, it's not a little bit nerve-wracking for me as a, you know, a fledgling OPC minister to come in and give a message, 12 messages, to a bunch of well-catechized people. You know, I, you, you, it, when you, certain audiences are just easy. They're not going to catch every, anything. But I'm sure, I'm sure there's something that I've said that, you know, somebody is listening to and is going to make a note and they're going to email me and gently and lovingly correct me. And I, and I welcome that. But it's a, it's a little bit of a, a, of a nervous thing. I know when I write my sermons, I, we have a pretty savvy congregation, and they're willing to check me out on that. So I try to make sure that when I write a sermon, that at very least I can find a few Reformed scholars who agree with what I say. If I, don't, if I can't find anybody, have you, ever, have you ever, for the pastors here, have you ever been you know, exegeting the text and you discover something that nobody else ever found? I've got a new thing here, you know. All the commentaries, I've read 30 of them. None of them know what I know about this text. <laughs> Guess who's wrong, right? Yeah, guess who's making the mistake? Every, friends, this is something that your Christian friends need to understand. Every Christian book is the author's confession. Every time a Christian gives an opinion about what the Bible means, it is his confession. Every time we stop reading the Bible and start talking, we are giving our confession of faith in a certain sense. Even, even if I answer your question by quoting Scripture, the particular Scripture that I use to answer your question is revealing that I think that that Scripture applies to your question. It may not apply to your question at all. So the only way I've decided... To avoid being being confessional is that any time anybody asks you a question, you have to read to them Genesis through Revelation. (laughs) Not really very good for church growth, but that's that's the only way to avoid being confessional. Matter of fact, any time you talk about God, all you you just you have to just start in in Genesis and just start reading until you get Revelation. As soon as you offer what you think it means, that's a confession. And again, it's not a well-thought-out confession. It's not one that's been evaluated by other people. It's not stood the scrutiny of time. It's not stood the scrutiny of other theologians. It's just your opinion of what that Scripture teaches. So everybody, everybody has one. D, respect for teachers. We t- and I mentioned this earlier. We tend to respect the teachers of our own generation, but we should also respect the teachers God has raised up throughout the history of His church. And that's something I think our Christian friends need to understand. Whether they agree or disagree, they should take advantage of the history of of the the teachers throughout history. E, fosters historic progression. Confessions aid in the progression of the church from generation to generation. Creeds and confessions allow us to take advantage of the strides made before us. 
I mean, have you ever had a conversation with somebody? I was talking to a lady in our church, and she visited some relatives, and uh, it was a girl who she went to China with, I think, actually, and uh, a Christian girl, and they were, they were, you know, she had gotten married, and she met her husband, and they were, you know, talking, and uh, this woman was kind of sharing the Reformed faith, and the guy was responding, and coming up, talk about novel theology, he was just coming up with stuff off the top of his head, and she was going, well, where are you getting this? And he goes, well, just a minute, it's coming to me. And he was making it up. He was coming up with a brand new doctrine. I mean, we have to recognize that there's no other discipline that operates in such a shoddy manner. Every discipline. You know, if you've ever ever been to the Library of Congress and you look up at the ceiling, you've got law, medicine, and theology. I mean, that's what, you know, when, when our nation was getting rolling, those were the three disciplines. Those were the three important things. Law, medicine, and theology. And, you know, law, you know, with, uh, you know, with, uh, what's his name, Larry Parker. Uh, That's gone, right? Medicine with the HMOs, you know, that's gone. I mean, all those things are just becoming, you know, they're becoming, but you look at those and those were the disciplines. Can you imagine uh, doctors operating that way? Can you imagine you know, people in R&D and medicine not taking advantage of the research that's gone before them. I think I mentioned earlier, we don't have our medical, we don't bring all of our medical students into a room, give them a body and say, okay, figure out how it works. It's all there. <laughs> you, you, they learn from the, the past. They learn from the mistakes that other doctors have made, right? They learn from the successes. So understanding the history of the church, especially as it's summed up in the confessions, fosters a historic progression so that we don't make the same mistakes that have been made. You know, what did, uh, what did so- uh, Solomon say, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And if you look at the modern heresies that creep in, they're just the old stuff coming back. Everybody know that, I mean, that Molinism's made its a comeback? How many of you feel familiar with Molinism? Okay, middle knowledge? Maybe that term, middle knowledge? <sighs> okay, what am I working with here? Obviously, none of you went to Talbot. <laughs> it was from a uh, Jesuit priest uh, in a, his response to the doctrines of grace, really a response to Calvin in the 1600s. He was, his name was Luis de Molina, and he came up with a theory of middle knowledge. And um, I'm going to take this long thing, and I'm going to give it to you in like 30 seconds, okay, just so you understand a little bit of middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is... It's there, it was his way of protecting the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And we, basically what he said was this, that there are a bazillion possible universes that could have existed. God created the universe where everybody on their own would freely do what he wants them to do, but he doesn't coerce or in any way force them to do it. But what he does is this. In the universe that he created where everybody will do what he wants them to do, he creates situations where the person, if they are confronted with the situation, will respond by doing what God wants them to do. In other words, the person A, when confronted with B, will do C. So God just makes sure that B happens. And A, experiencing B, will necessarily do C. That's middle knowledge. There's a lawyer in our church, he said... He calls it cosmic entrapment. 
because it's, all, it's, it's so full of holes, right? Who made A in such a way that A would do C if confronted with B? And then who made B? And does A really have free will when he's made in such a way that doing, when, B, when he's confronted with B, he must do C? Is that freedom? It seems all you've done is move the problem over one step. You haven't solved the problem at all. But you know what? It's a popular position by one of the most popular apologists in the country right now. But it was, it was popular in the 1600s. And, uh, you know, the great writers of the creeds and confessions got together. And that, I handled it in 30 seconds. You know, you can imagine that they handled it faster than that. Only they had to do it in a scholarly way to deal with this. But you know what? It's resurfacing. All the stuff is resurfacing. The same mistakes being made over and over again. Why? Because we forget the past. We forget the history. You ever talk to somebody who has um, lived in Europe in the 30s? And they were seeing kind of what was going on? And then they see that type of rhetoric and that type of propaganda happening again? And they're going, you don't understand. What was going on in the 30s you know, led to the late 30s and the 40s. You know, you know, I'm talking about World War II, we're talking about Hitler, we're talking about Nazism. And the, the way that thing unfolded, and the way it looked. And when they see that type of stuff happening again, you know, the hair on their neck goes up because they were there. And, uh, you know, they kept those camps, you know, Auschwitz and these camps, they kept them there so people would remember. And yet, even, you know, to this day, and I'm not an expert on World War II, but I happen to recognize that today people are doubt. you know, there's all sorts of doubt as to whether or not you know, the Holocaust ever took place. And, you know, all this stuff is just being doubted within a you know, generation or two. You forget the history. So it fosters historic progression. And so uh, it's a matter of respecting not both the successes and the failures of the theologians of the past. Um, it provides a basis for church fellowship. A person seeking a church can quickly know what the church believes in many areas. Well, remember I told you about the man who came to our church and he was, found out we weren't dispensational and he, you know, tried to blow up our church and have me defrocked and everything. I mean, we tried to handle that level-headedly and one of our elders, I think, made a good point. Because this man had attended our church probably for a year or two. And he was involved and, you know, he was part of the church. And one of our elders, I think, made a good point. It really wasn't fair to him that he became part of this church family, right? And he's involved, and he's got friends, then all of a sudden, we're teaching a doctrine that he radically disagrees with. Now, I think he was wrong, theologically, and I think he was wrong with the way he handled it, but nonetheless, we wanted to take our responsibility and realize that, that we're the ones who didn't have a theology. And we were a church, and we should have had a theology, and he should have known, he should have known coming right in, right up front, this is what we believe, and this is what we don't believe. Well, I remember when people call me up years ago and go, okay, well, hey, does your church speak in tongues? And I would like, you know, do the, the shuffle on that one, right? Well, you know, we don't really, but we, you know, and I was all trying to be Mr. Schmooze with them and get them in the door and all that. And, you know, I have an answer now. The answer is no, we don't. We believe we're cessationists. We believe the tongues have ceased. And how many other things, you know, that come up like that where you're just going, look, at, let, let me tell you right up front what we believe. You know, and of course, even the confession isn't exhaustive, right? I mean, there's, there's wiggle room. We don't all agree on every last little detail. 
We have people in this room who are all-millennial and post-millennial, and we have different views, you know, in terms of things. You know, and we recognize, you know, that we're honing it down and what have you, and we're trying to figure it all out, and hopefully we can do that nicely and lovingly. And, you know, I think there's nothing better than good Christians uh, engaging in a good, healthy, uh, loving debate. I think it's such a healthy thing. I, I've grown so much myself, like I said earlier, by losing those debates. And I think to not have it is a shame. But I think it's important as a church for us not to be so undefined that a person comes in and then all of a sudden, finding maybe years later that you believe something that, that, you know, that, that's just not part, of the, not part of that fellowship. I think it's unfair to the people becoming members of your church. Today's basis is often a short statement of faith or the appeal to a popular Christian, like I had mentioned earlier. A lot of churches have their statement of faith. I'm not against those. You know, you can have your short thing, you know. Or I guess I mentioned earlier, you know, there's a kind of a popular, you know, person who you identify with. Uh, G, it protects the congregation. Members are protected against their church making radical shifts if a pastor changes his mind on important theological issues or if a new pastor comes in with aberrant doctrines. Confessions protect the congregation. They protect God's people. And God's people are not subject to one guy's opinion. How do you avoid that without a confession? How do you avoid that without having something that's pretty protracted, pretty detailed in terms of, you know, I've come to the church... I mean, you know, I think the confession, the Westminster Confession, is detailed enough that if a church held to that, and they were, you know, really holding to it and not just winking at it, like, quite frankly, the PCUSA, they have like a, you know, and they're shifting it all around and stuff, but they just kind of wink at it. But if a church says, no, this is our position, we're holding to it, that the little disagreements, I know for me, I could probably live with. You know, my views of... uh, Uh, eschatology or of the law of God. You know, they're my views, and we can argue those things out. But I I could live in a church that didn't agree with me in every jot and tittle, provided it was within the boundaries of the confession. So I think that having a confession protects the congregation from the pastor just kind of going, hey, guess what, everybody? I read a new book last night, and we have a new theology in the church. And it also protects the congregation if the pastor retires or gets sick or dies or whatever, and you have a new pastor. I mean, one of my great comforts is that, uh, you know, I mean, I don't plan on any kind of early retirement. You know, I plan on doing this for a while. But, you know, I, I'd like to see our church be one of those churches that's around, you know, for hundreds of years. I'd like to, I'd like to have that be the case. And one of my great comforts is the fact that, you know, when it's my time to move on, that there's going to be a, not just our church and our elders, whoever is in it, but there's going to be a denomination that has confessional standards to make sure that the person who takes my place is sound. You know, I mean, that's such an important thing. I was talking to Roland one time, and I told him a statistic that he, I go, you know, because I have a brother-in-law who's a pastor, and he's really into the church growth stuff, and he said that, um, you know, when a new pastor comes to a church, 50% of the congregation will eventually leave. That's a statistic. You know, it's one of those Barna statistics. And Raleigh made an interesting point. He goes, he doesn't, think that's the, he doesn't think that statistic would work in the OPC. Because the OPC is not a personality, charismatic, person-driven denomination. It's a doctrinally driven denomination. It's, it's, uh, it's what, and when I say doctrinally driven, uh, people view that as kind of a cold statement. It is the true statements about Jesus. 
When I, when I say doctrine, when I, by the way, when I'm talking to my evangelical friends, sometimes I don't use that term doctrine because uh, for a while it's true things about Jesus. These are true things about Jesus. And everybody wants that. And I'm comforted to know that whoever takes my place is going to be thoroughly examined to make sure that they say true things about Jesus. And not just what they happen to think the Scriptures might teach. Keep in mind, everybody's walking around with a Bible in their hand. Everybody's saying they believe it. And the number of uh, systems of belief that flow from that type of thinking are virtually innumerable. And finally, and then I'm going to open it up for a little Q&A if, uh, if anybody's interested in asking any questions. Uh, it's necessary for church discipline. Congregations should know in advance what theology would be considered heretical. They should not be caught off guard. And so you need to know up front. I mean, if you believe in discipline, I mean, and you know, that's another conversation altogether. But if you believe in discipline, and if you believe, you know, Himenaeus and Alexander, right? They were teaching doctrines that were worthy of excommunication, right? To be, so you gotta you gotta know what those doctrines are that are worthy of church discipline. Otherwise, everybody, you're just kind of shooting from the hip when it comes to disciplinary action. Those are my eight reasons that I think we should, you know, at very least, and you can build on those that I have used to talk to my, you know anti-confessional friends in terms of why a church should have a confession or a creed. All right. Uh, anybody have any questions? Uh, open season, uh, open forum, town meeting, just be nice. Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? It's a movie reference. <laughs> yes, that's Charles, Chuck, John, John, and then Mr. Perkins. Point of order. No, I've always wanted to say that to you. <laughs> yeah, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, everybody here, John's, everybody here? Okay, all right, John, John's question is, if you confront somebody with the idea that everybody has a confession, and their response is, you know what, I have, I have divine revelation, and so I don't need to be judged by some human standard. I have God's standard who's revealing to me, I guess, in an unmediated, direct fashion, that what I say is true. And, uh, yes, and you deal with that. I... I um, I've, I've dealt with that quite a bit, and it's a different discussion. You get into, with that person, you get into a sola scriptura discussion, uh, whether or not they believe the canon of Scripture is actually closed. That was the discussion that made that pastor mad at me that one day, and it's logically incoherent, quite frankly. It doesn't make sense that you believe that God is still speaking to you the way that he was speaking to, to Peter or the way he was speaking to you know, Samuel, 
uh, because if that's the case, that person's word is the word of God. And you know what they'll say to that? They'll go, well, yeah, but, but this is just for me. They'll say, it's God just speaking to me. And you know what the response to that is? Yeah, but Philemon was written just to Philemon. Timothy was written just to Timothy. But it's still the word of God. And if it, in fact, is the word of God, what God is telling you is something that we're all obliged to acknowledge and bow before. So that's the discussion, I think, that you have to go with there, and that is, uh, do you believe that God is speaking to you in an unmediated, direct fashion? And uh, if they say yes to that, then it's an altogether different, different discussion. I, but, I, but usually people backpedal from that. They're usually not willing to go that far. I had a conversation with a man one time who came and taught at our church before we were in the OPC. One good reason why you should only have ordained OPC ministers or fraternal denominations speak, and he came and he spoke. And he was so out of line. I mean, he, what he, the message he gave was so inappropriate and so out of line. And um, we all just sat there, and I, you know, I, I didn't get up and do anything. I just kind of sat there and took my medicine and let him say what he was going to say. And, but our elders were just beside themselves with how inappropriate this was. So I called him up on the phone, and I said, I, what are you, I, I don't understand why you would say the things you said and what makes you think. Blah, blah. You know, we got into this discussion. And he said, well, brother, it was just the Spirit was leading me, and I just had to respond to what the Spirit told me to do. Okay, so what's going on here in this discussion? See, what he's, where is he putting me in the discussion? To question him is to do what? question God. So I said, you know, far be it from me to question the Holy Spirit. But I'm actually questioning you. And I and every elder in our church thought that what you did was inappropriate. And I just left it at that. I just left it at that. You know what? If people think that God is speaking to them directly, there's a, there's a bigger enchilada hanging out there than the problem with creeds and confessions. And, uh, and that, that's its own discussion you know, in terms of dealing with people who don't, quite frankly, believe in sola scriptura. And that's the issue. And quite frankly, it's an easy argument to make. Because they'll say this, too. They'll go, I, this is my friend who's becoming reformed, but he, he's reformed in his, in his uh, soteriology, and, in, and he's reformed in his eschatology, but he's not reformed in his pneumatology. That's the Holy Spirit. And he still, they still have the tongues and the word of knowledge, and people, you know, coming to him and saying, God told me to give you 800 bucks. And sure enough, we needed 800 bucks to fix the overhead. You know, and there it is. I go, well, if that's the case, next week when they come and ask for 8,000, you have to give it to them. You can't just decide this week you're a prophet of God, but next week you're not a prophet because it doesn't suit our budget. You know, you can't play that game. So here's what he says, and you probably have heard this, but you check it with the Scriptures. Have you ever heard that one? It's, there's no big deal. If people are getting words from God and prophecy, check it with the Scriptures. You know what my response to that is? If it's in the Scriptures, why do I need your word? Why do, why do I need what you're going to say? Why don't I just read the Scriptures? And, and then they say, well, specific things may not be in there. Well, if it's those specific things aren't in there, how can I check it with the Scriptures? You know, God told me to tell you to move the church to Orange County. Okay, what chapter and verse? How do I check that with the Scriptures? You see, that whole argument just falls apart. The, the whole idea of being sola scriptura and believing that the Bible is the sole infallible message from God to mankind falls apart in a, in a, really in a, in a charismatic paradigm. It just doesn't work. All right, anyways, uh, Charlie? Paul earlier was talking about dealing with people 
what, what I do is I go through the entire confession about every other year. Uh, what we do, no, we don't, we have a new member class that's taught by Dave uh, Kennard, who's an elder and he's under care in the Presbyterian. So we give them to him and he takes them through. But basically, and, uh, and we might, you know, this may not be the best way, but this is what, the way we use what we use, uh, is we go over, you know, the, the certain doctrines of our church and what have you, but we tell them, uh, in terms of their joining our church, that here's our confession of faith. And if, you're, if you find that you're in disagreement with anything in this, then you need to bring this to our attention so that we can talk about whether or not there's a real problem with you becoming a member in our church. So we kind of give them the responsibility. We give them a copy of the confession, let them read through it. And uh, sometimes, though, you can tell based upon where people are coming from what the problems are going to be. And so you, right now, for example, we have a couple coming to our church, and their background is same as mine, AIA, and we have all, we have all the same old friends. So I know exactly what's going on in this guy's head. And so what I'm trying to do is explain to him, you know, if you come here, it's a, it's a little different picture. I mean, he, this guy used to work for Hal Lindsey. You know, so we don't, we don't fly the Hal Lindsey mobile here. At this, you know, so I'm trying to explain it to him in such a way. But that's the way we have it. So at very least, if somebody, for example, we have, sometimes we have new converts, and that's great because, you know, it's like a clean slate, right? You're just teaching them right up front, and those are beautiful. Other people come in, and they're just like, I don't really know. It's never been that big of a deal. Teach me. And then you teach them. But you have other people, like this man, who was committed to a certain doctrine. And that person needs to know. So that's the person who will actually read the confession. That's the person who will come up and say, are you saying that you think the church is, the Isra- is Israel? They're going to say that. And then you're going to go, yeah. And then they're going to go, thank you, but no thanks. And they're out the door. Or they're going to say, can you explain to me how that works and what have you. But I think at very least, you've got to get the information in their hands. And, uh, and I, know, so, I don't know, if, do, a lot of you, do some of your churches go through the entire confession before becoming a member? Anybody do that? The entire confession? Catechism? Nobody? Well, I don't know how far we have to go, but that's kind of our position on that, is we just make sure that the people have that information. I mean, you can read the whole confession in, you know, less than an hour, right? It's not that, it's not that long. Maybe you don't understand it all, but you certainly can read it. Wayne Forkner, by the way, was in the very first Westminster Confession class I ever taught. He's a OPC minister up in Berkeley now, and I had a picture of a guy on the cover, and I said, anybody who can guess the picture of this guy, guess who it is, wins a candy bar, and uh, Wayne won the candy bar, and I've never given it to him. <laughs> it was Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza. Any other questions? Anything else? Uh, yeah. 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 Sometimes you got to leave that whole Presbyterian thing out of there. No. Uh, yeah. Um, when you're when you're out there in the community and you're talking and somebody says, what, "What church you go to?" and you say, "You know, I go to Orthodox 
such and such Orthodox Presbyterian church, and they say, well, how does that differ from my little community church? And I've heard all this stuff about the Presbyterian church, and you realize that most Presbyterian churches are way off the charts liberal, and, you know, and not in the OPC, but obviously in the PCUSA. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, I usually, you know, what I've practiced is giving, you know, uh, Shakespeare said, brevity is the art of wit. And I know with the length of my talks this week, maybe you're thinking I haven't really learned that lesson. But um, what I've tried to do is find really quick ways to respond to things because, you know, you got to have, I learned this when I became a Pater Baptist because they have a quick, Baptists have a quick, believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. They have, a, they have one verse. It's all over their fridge. Believe and be baptized. And you're like, going, wow, you know, they've got one verse for their position. And I have to explain the whole idea of the covenant? <laughs> yes, but if you start reading the covenant in Abraham in verse 15 of Genesis, and, you know, remember when he split and he walked through, and, and you're, they're like, <laughs> And so I've developed a quick response to that. You know, I have a couple of quick responses like, well, why do you think, and this was when I stole, but why do you think our children are excluded from God's covenant? That's a quick one, and nobody knows how to answer it, because most people don't know what the question even means. But another one is, another response that I'll give to, to that is, you know what, it's always been God's gracious command that the sign of his covenant be, be upon the children of believers, and he's never changed that. It's a quick response. And now that still requires a little more thought, but, you, you know, you start... Anyways, with that, what I'll do is I'll give a quick... You know, there was a time back in the 20s when the Presbyterian Church started moving in a liberal direction, and this was the denomination that started saying, you know what, we don't want to go in that direction. And, that's, and so we're a much more conservative uh, branch of the, uh, of the Presbyterian Church, very conservative. And sometimes they'll ask, you know, what does reformed mean? You know, maybe you've heard that, right? What's, what's reformed? You know, they think that we all used to be alcoholics, right? And... Uh, <laughs> I just come off with going, you know what, it's a really high view of the sovereignty of God. That's a, you know, one sentence, right? We just have a really high view of the sovereignty of God. Or, or we believe that, you know what, man is saved by grace alone through faith alone. You know, and that's a big emphasis with us. You know, you, and I just try to, without necessarily getting into an argument, because most Christians, if you say that, we have a high view of the sovereignty of God, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. You know, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, who we know by the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. They're all like nodding their head, right? They're all like, yeah, I'm on board for that. Well, we believe that. And, you know, they'll say, we believe that. And I'll go, yeah, it's just a real point of emphasis in our church. I mean, it's something we really focus on. It's important, you know. So, you know, I've, I have personally found quick ways to start the conversation in hopes that later on we can finish the conversation, you know, and that's, that's when we do the pub. Remember that conversation we had at the soccer field? Well, you know, bring some Samuel Adams and we'll finish that conversation. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They don't like that middle one. Yeah, the question is, uh, have a lot of people you're talking to, they say they're four-point Calvinist. Uh, and that, yeah, that's popular. A lot of Lutherans kind of refer to themselves as four-point Calvinists because maybe it wasn't as well-defined from Luther to Calvin. And they don't like that middle one, you know. They don't like that limited atonement. That's the one that really... And, um, you know, and that requires a further co uh, conversation. But it's, you know, I mean, where that conversation, talk about logic, it's logically necessary. 
it's logically a necessary position. But in terms of the one issue, the limited atonement issue, maybe limited atonement, people argue, isn't the best term, and maybe it isn't. You know, some people call it particular atonement. Or partic but the point there is that everybody believes in limited atonement. Everybody. Unless you're a universalist, right? Unless you think everybody's going to get saved, you either believe that it's limited in its power or it's limited in its scope. It's one way or the other. In other words, you know, the there was an atonement provided for everybody on this side of the chasm. Right? For everybody, equally. But there's no guarantee that any of them are going to get all the way across the chasm. So it's limited in its power. It only gets people, you know, halfway across the chasm. Which, by the way, isn't a good place to be. Right? Half halfway across. Or it takes a certain number of people and brings them all the way across the chasm. Those are your two options. Either it's limited in its power or it's limited in its, in its, uh, in its scope. And, you know, and, and still people will wrestle with it, but, I mean, that to me is just so obvious. But, it, again, it took me a year and a half to capitulate. So that's where the incremental, incrementalism comes in. Yeah, Katie. Yeah, so the question is, what is, what is hyper-Calvinism? <laughs> I'm trying to remember the best definition for hyper-Calvinism. I remember uh, when I was at Talbot, that came up a lot. And um, it came up, sometimes it came up in the infralipsarian, supralipsarian argument where, you know, God has predestined people, you know, to hell and to heaven versus people who God predestines to, he to heaven and certain people go to hell on their own. Uh, other people view a hyper-Calvinistic view almost as a, a, as a Muslim view of God, a Muslim view of predestination, where there is, nothing, there is no human freedom at all taken into account. See, one of the things you'll find that your uh, critics of the Reformed Church will accuse you of is not believing in free will. And I go, no, we have a whole chapter on free will. And so, because, because there is kind of a, a closed mechanistic type of universe thinking, you know, where there is a God, but everybody is just kind of, you know, molecules. Kind of, it's kind of a, almost a materialistic view, although it's a, got a theistic understanding, where everybody is just doing what God has determined for them to do, and there's no volition involved whatsoever. And uh, they argue that, you can't have freedom unless you actually have the ability to choose one or the other. All right? You know, have you ever heard that argument? If you go, hey, you know, I believe in free will. I just believe, you know, that my free will is not somehow outside of the scope of God's sovereign choices. It's a primary, secondary cause. God is the first cause in all things. But the free will has to be defined. What is free will? Free will has to be defined as me doing what I want to do. And I certainly have the freedom to do what I want to do. All right, so I'm not gonna, we're not going to argue against that. Then they say, well, then can't you freely choose God as an unregenerate man hidden in his sins? Well, I don't have the ability to do that. And they say, but if you don't have the ability to do it, it's really not freedom. Have you ever heard that argument? 
It's just a sham. It's just a charade. Unless you have the actual ability to choose good or evil, you can't say that the will is free. How would you respond to that? You ask, here's, here's, you know, this is my apologetics background, because I've had a lot of these arguments. I ask them, do you think God has a free will? And And almost everybody will say, of course God has a free will. And you say, can God choose to do evil? That pretty much redefines free will in a lot of people's minds. Because everybody knows that God says of himself, I cannot, what? Lie. God can't do evil. It's inconsistent with his very nature. If we're going to argue that you have to have the ability to do good or evil in order for your will to be free, then you have to argue that God doesn't have a free will because God, according to his own nature, cannot do evil. He can only do good. How about when we all go to heaven? Is there going to be another fall in heaven? Will there be another fall in heaven? Yes or no? Everybody says no, right? So that means that when we're all in heaven, we're not going to have really the ability to choose to do evil, will we? So does that mean that we have no freedom in heaven? Is is heaven some type of celestial prison? And so I think those types of questions need to be answered. Now, there may be another definition of hyper-Calvinism, but those are the ones, you know, that I've heard you know, at least at the different seminaries. Unless somebody has a better definition, uh, you can talk to Katie afterward. Uh, Yeah, Jerry. Right, Right. what Jerry's saying is that some views of hyper-Calvinism are people who become paralyzed and don't do anything. They don't witness, they don't pray, they don't do anything because they just figure God's going to do everything. Um, It's an interesting accusation made against Calvinists, right? Well, if you believe God's going to do everything, then you you don't have to do anything. They don't understand that God has determined not only the end, but the means by which the end takes place. But it's also a matter of recognizing that, you know what, God doesn't need me. God has chosen to allow me to be part of his divine plan, and it's a great blessing. You can borrow this little story if you like. When I was a kid, there was a TV commercial. I probably wasn't a kid, maybe a little older. It was a shake and bake commercial, and it was the mom, and she's cooking. And there's a little girl, and she's helping. And mom comes out, and she's got the apron on, and the little girl, and they put the shake and bake on the uh, table. And the mom goes, it's shake and bake. And the little girl goes, and I helped. Okay, here's my question. Think it was easier for mom? that she actually helped? Because I don't think it was. I mean, the little girl was, you know, it was a blessing to her to be involved in the process. You know, God doesn't need me. 
right? These those stones will yell out if I if I don't. It's a it's a complete change in in the thinking. I know, you know, for me, when I came to the realize that to realize that God doesn't need me to do th- these things. God has blessed me by allowing me to be a partaker in these glorious things. It's a blessing for me, but He doesn't need me to do it. And people, you know, and Spurgeon also had an interesting response because they say, if God only has chosen certain people to respond, why would you preach to them? Why share the gospel with them? You know what his response to that was? His response was, you know what, if God didn't choose people to respond, why would you preach the gospel? Because if God didn't choose people to respond, guess what? Nobody would respond. It's the fact that I know that there are people out there who will respond by the grace of God that motivates me to recognize that the words will not return void and fall on deaf ears. Some people will respond. And so, you know, it really gets down to the T of total depravity. That's what it really gets down to, whether or not you recognize that man is really dead in his sins. Because you talk about the logical necessity, the T necessitates the ulip. It, it must. It just flows from that. All right. I'm, I'm probably really late, and unless there's a real pressing, somebody's just going, I really need to ask this question. I don't even know what time I'm supposed to end. What time am I supposed to end? Right now. Right now. <laughs> as, as Providence would have it, I, it's time to end. It's like, it's like when I went and I wanted to buy a suit, and the guy said, how much is that suit? And I said, he said, how much you got in your pocket? He said, 700 bucks. He goes, interesting. It's the same price. All right. Anyways, let's end with a, a word of prayer. Father God, we do pray that you would help us. Help us to help our neighbors. Help the kingdom, Father, grow. May it grow, Father, in our hearts and throughout the world. And may you, Father, truly continue to do a reforming work in our lives and in the lives of the people with whom we come in contact with. Through Christ we pray. Amen.